The Hamlet Podcast, episode 124. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Conor Hanrity. Last time, we covered the first half of Hamlet's final soliloquy, How All Occasions Do Inform Against Me. As I record this, I'll confess to feeling rather mortal and unsure myself, looking at the state of the world these days, and in the midst of quarantining and isolating myself, my laptop decided to give up the ghost this week. So hopefully I will manage to continue creating the show via some cobbled together older machinery. Wish me luck. In the midst of it all, it is inspiring to see the valiant efforts of our delicate and tender princes, those on the front lines in so many different professions. For this, relief, much thanks. And thanks indeed to everyone who's staying at home, washing your hands and continuing to be kind to each other. Meanwhile, we have a Danish prince who's halfway through a soliloquy. Hamlet has already echoed ideas from his other soliloquies, particularly in the way that he's compared the determination of the Norwegian soldiers and his own cause. He finishes his speech in a rather more deliberate mood. Rightly to be great is not to stir without great argument, but greatly to find quarrel in a straw when honour's at the stake. How stand I then, that have a father killed, a mother stained, excitements of my reason and my blood, and let all sleep, while to my shame I see the imminent death of twenty thousand men, that for a fantasy and trick of fame go to their graves like beds, fight for a plot whereon the numbers cannot try the cause, which is not tomb enough and continent to hide the slain. Oh, from this time forth, my thoughts be bloody or be nothing worth. Already Hamlet has explained his respect for how Fortinbras's army is prepared to cross Europe for a little patch of ground about as thick or useful as an eggshell. He expands the idea now, musing that real greatness isn't just retaliating when there's a just cause or great argument, but to argue over something as small as a tiny corner of Poland if your honour depends on it. Rightly to be great is not to stir without great argument, but greatly to find quarrel in a straw when honour's at the stake. There are some double negatives here, which make the sentence a little tricky to unpack, and indeed Hamlet is himself aware of the madness of Fortinbras's escapade. He's doing all this because despite it seeming futile, he has to for the sake of his honour. And to Hamlet, that makes him great. Within the lines, there are further echoes. The ghost used the phrase, wouldst thou not stir in this, all the way back in Act 1. Hamlet is debating action here, and it's no accident that this word stir is the phrase he happens upon here. Rightly to be great is not to stir without great argument, but greatly to find quarrel in a straw. And indeed, the straw is the word Hamlet already used to describe the little patch of ground in Poland. Here, however, he manages to expand even this little throwaway image. In Elizabethan England, another form of popular entertainment, as well as the theatre, was bear-baiting. If you watched Game of Thrones, you might remember the grisly scene which slightly replicated the idea. But in fact, the original activity was even nastier. A stake was set up in the middle of a ring, perhaps not unlike what grew to become the wooden O of Shakespeare's theatre space. A bear would be tethered to it and only had a small amount of freedom to move. 
Next, a pack of dogs would be set upon the bear and audiences would relish the conflict between the dogs and the chained animal. If the dogs were smart and quick enough, they might stay out of the bear's way, but even a tiny mistake could be, and often was, fatal. Shakespeare uses the image of the stake quite frequently, and I'll put some of the clearest examples in the show notes for this episode. He puts honour at the stake in three other plays, as well as Hamlet, so it's obviously an image that he really likes. It's quite an amazing stunt, this. Shakespeare has Hamlet pondering honour and greatness and his Norwegian rival crossing the world to contest a piece of straw. And then instantly he pulls our imaginations back to the world of bear pits and theatres and the straw on the ground beneath his audience's feet. And he continues with this notion of the ground we're standing on and has Hamlet say, How stand I then that have a father killed, a mother stained, excitements of my reason and my blood and let all sleep? How is it, he's wondering, that these soldiers can go and do all that for nothing, basically, while he has a father that has been murdered, a mother defiled by incest, or at very least stained by her association with the murderer, and we know he is the murderer, and all these provocations, excitements of his head and his heart, his reason and his blood, and he's letting it all stand, or, if it's still night, he's letting everyone sleep while he worries about it all. All of this is raging in Hamlet's mind as he wonders how it is that he hasn't done anything yet. While, to my shame, I see the imminent death of 20,000 men that, for a fantasy and trick of fame, go to their graves like beds, fight for a plot whereon the numbers cannot try the cause, which is not tomb enough and continent to hide the slain. Hamlet has somehow multiplied the number of soldiers on the move, It was 2,000 souls earlier in this short scene, but now he's envisaging 20,000 men going to their graves like beds. They're happily going to their deaths for a fantasy and trick of fame, for the illusion of fame or greatness, or indeed honour. Remember back in To Be or Not To Be, there was a correlation between the images of sleeping and dying, and Hamlet repeats it here. I don't think that this needs to be a mistake that Shakespeare made or an instance of Hamlet being terrible at numbers. Remember that he has altered quantities for dramatic effect before. There were two hours or a little month and so on. He is again berating himself for not acting. Let's be more specific and say not attacking Claudius when he has just cause, in contrast with these unfortunate hordes of Norwegians who are going to their deaths for the flimsiest of reasons. These poor men fight for a plot of land that is so small that the number of men in the army won't fit on it to fight a battle for it. The numbers cannot try the cause, and it likewise isn't big enough to hold all of the bodies that will die there. They fight for a plot whereon the numbers cannot try the cause, which is not tomb and continent enough to hide or bury the slain. Hamlet is starting to balance the philosophical with the pragmatic. We've had all of these references to his other soliloquies, to other little moments in the play that are slowly coming into crystal clear focus now of what he's going to have to do. All of these men are fighting for someone else's honour. They're motivated and they're taking action and they have no skin in the game. And yet he, whose father has been killed and whose mother has been seduced by the murderer, still hasn't managed to take the ultimate action. This may finally be about to change now, after we've heard all of his little glimpses and memories of everything that he's gone through already, as something like a resolution might be forming in Hamlet's final words. 
Oh, from this time forth, my thoughts be bloody, or be nothing worth. Of course, Hamlet has spoken like this before, when he was cooking up the plan to entrap Claudius with the player's performance, and indeed in the murky images of Nero and hot blood as that fateful day wore on. But he chickened out of killing Claudius when the man was praying, and now he finds himself en route overseas after having killed the wrong man. We won't see Hamlet again until Act 5, but we will hear from him, and perhaps he may have focused his intents. In the meantime, there are several shocking scenes left in Act 4, and we will get started with them next time. As ever, thank you for listening. It means a great deal to see that people are tuning in from all over the world and joining me on this little adventure. We've recently been added to Google Podcasts, so that's yet another place that you can get your fix, as if Spotify or Apple or SoundCloud weren't enough. This coming week includes Shakespeare's birthday, and in keeping with the spirit of things, there will likely be a lot of stuff available online. I can thoroughly recommend that you visit Shakespeare's Globe in London, virtually of course, who are making a huge variety of Shakespeare productions available for streaming. And a little bit closer to home, the recent production of Hamlet, directed by Joe Dowling last autumn, here in Dublin, will also be available to watch online on Shakespeare's birthday, April the 23rd. I'll share a link to that on various social media platforms, so I'll make sure that you can get your hands on that if you'd like to check it out. As promised a short while back, I'm putting together a mini-series of supplementary episodes to the Hamlet podcast, something like a back-to-basics discussion of everything you could possibly want to know about how Shakespeare works. That will also launch on April the 23rd, naturally enough, and they'll continue until I suppose I've run out of things to say. If you have any requests for things to cover, you can get in touch via Twitter or Facebook or indeed Instagram, all with the handle at Hamlet Podcast. Or you can get in touch via the website, which, as I'm sure you know by now, is thehamletpodcast.com. In the next main episode, we'll be back inside the Castle of Elsinore for Act 4, Scene 5, and I hope you'll join me then. <laughs>